if I'm the only one. <laughs> but there's a, there's a tendency for me on, uh, on Saturday mornings for, for me to kind of get caught up in the routine of where I need to be and what I need to do that I don't give myself the opportunity to actually be still enough and know that God is God. I don't know if that ever happens to you. That's just confessions of a pastor right there. But um, I just really want to encourage you to be intentional today, to be still, to allow your thoughts to be still and know that God is God, that there are reasons that um, there are 10,000 reasons and more to bless the Lord, to truly bless his name. Um, today, I want to uh, just dive right into um, our message for the day. And so just uh, would you please pray with me? <clears throat> Father in heaven, right now, um, I really just surrender uh, the next few moments that we have together as we open up the Bible, as we think upon the things that you have in store for us to hear, to listen to, to respond to. I realize, God, that it's so much more than just what is said or what is read, but what the Holy Spirit um, impresses upon each heart. And so I just ask that your spirit would do that today that your spirit would be our teacher, our counselor, our comforter, the one who leads us into all truth, knowing that truth truly sets us free. Um, God, I pray that you would take whatever burdens we may have on our hearts, whatever storms that may um, maybe distract us or inhibit us from really hearing from you today. I ask, God, that you would take that. Uh, thank you so much that you are more than able and more than willing to do that, more than able and more than willing to meet us here. And so we ask that as we move into this message of starting point and consider what are those first steps in seeking God, that you would truly meet us here today. So thank you for your goodness. Thank you in advance for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, let the family say, amen, amen. All right, so welcome. Um, we are diving into this message. Last, last week we started this series, Starting Point, and we are going to continue that for the next three weeks together. Um, but even before we get to specifically this, mess, or this idea, I want to um, ask this question of why does God's church even exist? Why, not just this congregation locally, but why does God's church even exist? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. I mean, it's not just a, a place for people to come to. It's not just a, a program for people to be a part of. Really, when you find in Scripture, God's church exists to make disciples who are prepared for the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus was, um, after his resurrection, and as he spoke to his disciples for the last time before he left, um, you know, before he ascended to heaven, he just gave them this, what's known as the Great Commission. Maybe you've heard it. Go, therefore, into all nations, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, when it comes to this church and why we've started this church, and the question of, why did you start a church, and why does this church even exist? I want us to realize that we are not here on this awesome vista vantage point of, of Castle Rock. We are not here just to have a nice view. We are not here just to have a program for people to come to. We're not here to make program attendees. We're not even here to make excellent volunteers, although program attendance and volunteerism is something that we encourage and stuff. But really, those, that's only an aspect of what we're really about. And when you look at, I mean, we've just kind of printed it on the front of our bulletin, so it's there in our face all the time, that we exist to make passionate followers of Jesus who do three specific things. Do you see it there on your bulletin? What are those things? Hey, they, who seek God, who share life, and who serve the world. 
So when it comes to, okay, yeah, we know we were supposed to make disciples. We know we want to prepare people for Christ's second coming. But what is it? What are those experiences that actually make someone a passionate follower of Jesus? And as we've studied, as our core team has planned and prayed over this, we've decided that the three environments, the three experiences that a true follower that is growing into maturity um, experiences, they're seeking God, they're sharing life with other people, and they're serving the world. They're not just taking it all in for themselves, but they're saved to serve. And so the question that I want us to consider over the next few weeks together is how in the world then, if that's what it takes, if that's what's involved in really following Jesus, the question I want us to consider over the next few weeks is how do we do that? (laughs) Like, where do we even begin? How do we even engage that process of becoming a follower of Jesus? How How do we then seek God? How do we share life? How do we serve the world? And uh, maybe you've given thought to this, and, and, and that's awesome. And maybe you haven't, and that's why we want us to study together about this. Where do we start? What's the starting point? And so today, where, how do we even start seeking God? What are those first steps in seeking God? And today, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the Gospel of John. We were there last week, and we're just going to stay in the Gospel of John for the most part today. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, um, you can actually find, if you use the Bible app, by the way, you can actually find our event, uh, quote-unquote, our event on Bible apps, uh, on the Bible app, and you can follow the scriptures there. But we're going to the Gospel of John. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. <clears throat> it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. And we're going to start in the very first chapter. We were here last week. And the very starting point of Jesus' ministry, it was that announcement from the banks of the Jordan River. John the Baptist made that dramatic moment. He said, Whoa, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We read that there in John chapter 1, verse 29. But we're actually going to go a little bit further now to verse 35. John chapter 1, verse 35. This is that very next day after John declares that, uh, that uh, prophetic revelation, so to speak, that this is Jesus, the Lamb of God. We're there in John chapter 1, verse 35. If you have it, go ahead and say, I have it. All right, John chapter 1, verse 35. I'm actually using the New King James Bible today. And we'll have, uh, for the most part, we'll have some of these scriptures here on the screen. But we're going to start in verse 35. Sorry, we're not there yet. (laughs) John chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Again, the next day. Okay, so this is the day after that that revelation. Oh, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. Did you know that John had disciples? People who were learning after him, kind of following his mold, his his pattern and stuff. And then in verse 36, it says, And looking at Jesus, so there Jesus shows up at the Jordan River again. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, what did he say there? Behold the Lamb of God. He's repeating the very same thing as though there were people in the audience that that day that heard it the previous day, or maybe that didn't hear it the previous day. And whatever the situation, they needed to hear it now. Behold, check it out, look. Maybe your Bible, you're using a different translation, it says, look, it's the Lamb of God. And notice what happens immediately after that. In verse 37, the two disciples, these were two disciples that were hanging out with John the Baptist, The two disciples heard him speak, and what did they do as a result? They followed Jesus. There was something that John the Baptist said that inspired them to do something different with their current situation. And what was it that John the Baptist said? 
Behold the lamp, right? The very same thing he said the day before. Look at Jesus. Do you know who this man is? He's the Lamb of God. And as a result, it says, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And in verse 38, then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, what was the question? (laughs) What's up, man? You know, I don't know if you've ever had anybody following you, but I just imagine Jesus kind of with a twinkle in his eye, like a little, you know, kind of out of the corner of his eye. What are you guys looking for? You know, what's the big deal? I know this man, John the Baptist, that you've been following just said something great about me, but, but what is it that you're really seeking? Did you catch that word? Seek. What do you seek? And so here we see that there, these disciples, they have, I don't know if you could kind of map out their experience, but they start with a, a curiosity based on what John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb. And that turns into a conversation. Notice what happens, because Jesus engages them. What do you seek? And in verse 39, and we don't have it on the screen, but it says in verse 39, He said to them, Oh, sorry. Let's, let's finish reading verse 38. What do you seek? They said to Him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher, where are you staying? They have a question. Jesus asks a question. He has a question back. Hey, what, what are you looking for? Philip and Andrew, they look to each other. Maybe they're not quite sure what they're looking for, but they definitely know that they need more time. (laughs) They need more time to process this curiosity, and they want to engage Jesus in a little more conversation. So they say, where are you staying? In verse 39, he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour, which turns out to be probably around four o'clock in the afternoon. And in verse 40, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found who? The Messiah. Did you notice the jump there? John the Baptist says, Look, the lamb. They say, Where are you staying? They, they find out some more. And then when Andrew goes to his brother, he doesn't say, We have found the lamb. What does he say? We have found the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed, the the hope of all hopes. This is the man. So just kind of mapping out Philip and Andrew and their experience here. Their curiosity turns into a conversation. And that conversation turns into a conviction. The conviction is simply that this is more than just a man. This is more than just a man who walks around with the label of Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. The one who's going to fulfill all of our deepest and grandest hopes. And that conviction, I would say, turns into... Do you see this word? Do you guys know what this word? Consecration. What do you guys think of when you hear consecration? What does that entail? Aiden? Concentration? Okay. So, yeah, maybe, I mean, it's a different word, but yeah, it has that intention there where you're focused on something. What else comes to mind when you think of consecration? Say it again. Anointed, okay. Where it's kind of specially designated, yeah, okay, okay. Separated, yeah, set, set apart for a specific use, yeah. It's, it's, uh, there's this idea of dedication, of, uh, of kind of having a, a, a narrow focus now. So what ends up happening is the story of Philip and Andrew, as you read through the rest of the Gospels, it's no longer the same. It's no longer the same as it was the day before. Instead, their whole life is in reference to Jesus. 
their whole life centers around not their, not their following after John the Baptist, not their previous profession. Their whole life has a new reference point. And that reference point has a name. His name is Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Messiah. And I think this, if we were to kind of unpack what we mean by seeking God, this is what we're talking about. It's those things that lead us to this consecration, this soul focus where Jesus becomes the very center of our existence. That we don't live and move for ourselves, but we live and move for Jesus and because of Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah? So we're talking about seeking God. We're talking about that kind of relationship, a relationship of trust, a relationship of surrender. And for Philip and Andrew, this whole experience of now centering their lives on Jesus, it all started with beholding the Lamb. So for Philip and Andrew, this seeking God, it started with, again, seeing Jesus. And uh, we're going to notice that when it comes to sharing life next week and then serving the world the week after, I mean, you guys are kind of getting the idea here that the starting point for all of these things is seeing Jesus. It's seeing who He is, specifically the revelation of Jesus on the cross. And so for Philip and Andrew, this whole experience of seeking God was sparked by that revelation of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And we see it just in a span of a few verses right there. But today we're going to actually look at one other story one other biography of a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus' story, it starts actually, uh, at least the, the story that we see, it starts in a couple chapters later, John chapter 3. Then before we get there, let me just say simply this, that whether we are seeking God, whether we've been seeking God for years, you know, whether we've been kind of around the block, so to speak, of, of these ideas of what it is to relate with God, or whether we are beginning this journey, or whether we even just considering beginning this journey. Wherever you're at on this spectrum, I believe that Jesus is inviting us to start or restart seeking God with this revelation of who Jesus is. And when we do, when we truly see who Jesus is as the Lamb, then seeking Him won't remain at this level of curiosity and conversation. When we truly see Jesus as the Lamb, it will move us to conviction and then finally centering our lives around Him where we live a consecrated life. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to go to John chapter 3. And we're going to see how this, this whole experience pans out for Nicodemus. And I think Nicodemus' story is a little bit more relatable than Philip and Andrew. I mean, for us, we're not going to see Jesus walking around and we're, we're not going to be able to follow him like, you know, as they did and experience that kind of change in one day. But Nicodemus' story, he faced a few more obstacles along the way. He faced a few more hesitations and reservations. And I think his story is something that we may be able to relate to. And so we're going there. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. <clears throat> Alright, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And the New King James is this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. Interestingly, that word ruler, it's, a, it's actually a special designation. He was like the ruler, the teacher, the kind of like a high authority of spiritual understanding and perspective in that day. He was a ruler of the Jews. In verse 2, this man came to Jesus by what time of day? By night. And said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Here's Nicodemus. He's pursuing a conversation with Jesus. Obviously, he's, ha- he's got some level of curiosity there, so now he's going to pursue a conversation with Jesus. And he does so at nighttime, probably because he's not quite sure that he wants others to be aware that he's now pursuing, seeking God. Okay, So he has some reservations there. He's, uh, this conversation is at night because Nicodemus' concerns, he, he, he doesn't want to forsake maybe his status amongst the people for his pursuit of a relationship with Jesus. So he's seeking, but he's not quite sold out, if you will. And in verse 3... After, you know, Nicodemus kind of butters up Jesus and says, hey, hey, you're a great guy. You're a teacher. Come from God. You can do all these kinds of signs. And in verse 3, Jesus kind of penetrates Nicodemus' heart and what he's really after. And in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, sorry, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of Excuse me, unless one is born again, he cannot see what? He cannot see the kingdom of God. Read that again. Jesus' word. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, based on the way Jesus addresses Nicodemus right here, what would you say Jesus understands about what Nicodemus is really after? As Jesus is kind of reading Nicodemus, sitting there uh, under the moonlight or whatever, what does Jesus see in Nicodemus that Nicodemus is really seeking? What is Nicodemus seeking? The kingdom of God? Wouldn't you say? Uh, He's there. Hey, I know what you're looking for, but you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, right? Here's the thing, Nicodemus, as he is seeking this conversation with Jesus, what he is really seeking is eternity. Right? Do you follow that? Jesus reads his heart and says, Hey, Nicodemus, you're after something that I've planted there. You are looking for eternity. (laughs) You are looking for heaven. You are looking for the assurance that all that you're doing in your life is actually going to pay off in the end. Does anyone resonate with that? Like, you kind of want that, like, oh man... Is this for real? Is this legit? Am I really headed in the right direction? And what's interesting is that these are good things. Heaven, eternity, um, the assurance that there's a quote-unquote payoff at the end, that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. Those, Those are good things to seek, but there's something amiss. Or maybe I should say there's something missing. See, Nicodemus, I would submit, is actually seeking God's inheritance, but he's not seeking God himself. Do you see the difference? And maybe some of us resonate with that, that we're seeking that inheritance more than we're actually seeking God himself. Um, The kingdom, however, is more. The kingdom is more than just a reward. I I, I believe that the kingdom is actually a relationship. In fact, that phrase, kingdom of God, it can actually be translated as God's kingship or God's rule. So you can't even see God ruling in your life unless you're born again. You can't even see this idea of being surrendered to God unless a change has taken place in your heart. 
And so the kingdom of God, what we're really seeking, or what Nicodemus was seeking, he was seeking the inheritance, the place, the locale of the kingdom, but he wasn't seeking the relationship of the king, or the relationship with the king. And here's the thing, and that's, that's something that I believe in, throughout the rest of the chapter, in John chapter 3, Jesus is really trying to draw Nicodemus to this idea of trust, this idea of relationship. In a matter of five verses, from, um, from verse 12 to 18, uh, he, he repeats it five times, do you believe this? If anyone believes, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that anyone who believes in him should have everlasting life. Jesus was trying to draw Nicodemus away from just seeking this reward to actually believing in a relationship. Nicodemus was confused, though. He was confused by this need for a rebirth, being born again. Remember, this is a religious leader. This is someone who's been around the block of spiritual things before. And in verse 9, he asks that, that question. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? How can these things be? It's interesting. This is a question of a starting point. Jesus is saying, hey, you need to start over. You need to be born again. You need to have a rebirth. And and Nicodemus simply asks, how? What in the world? You know, how is that supposed to happen? It's the question of a starting point. Where do you even begin? How does that take place? And interestingly, he doesn't ask the question of why. He doesn't say, why does this need to happen? Which implies that somewhere along the line, Nicodemus knows that he needs a restart. And Jesus is trying to give him that direction. Jesus is trying to show him what the true starting point is. And Jesus' answer, you know, he kind of goes through this, but by the time he gets to verse 14 and 15, this is essentially the answer of how to be born again. It's not anything we do, but it's something that the Son of Man does. And it says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be, what are the next two words? Be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Question. Jesus is referring to an Old Testament story here, when Moses lifted up the serpent. This is a story in the book of Numbers. You find it in Numbers chapter 21. There's a time where the children of Israel were bitten by something. Does anybody know what they were bitten they're bitten by snakes, fiery snakes, the Bible says. So, like, I mean, their, their bite was flaming hot. It was venomous. People were dying off. And Moses was instructed to do something in order for the people to be saved and healed. Moses was instructed to create a, a brazen or a bronze serpent and do something with it amidst the people. He was instructed to lift it up. So that when people saw the snake, what, were, what was supposed to happen to them? They would be healed. They would be restored. This is like a crazy phenomenon. I mean, they were being bitten by snakes. I need someone to suck out my venom, you know, whatever. But why are you telling me to look at this thing that I don't even want to look at? This was a faith thing for the children of Israel. And you ask yourself, why, why, why a snake? Because if this were to be a representation of the Son of Man... I mean, you'd think lamb, right? <laughs> you wouldn't think snake. And I, I, I don't know, in the Bible, I often um, connect snake to something uh, dark or evil. You know, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And here's the thing. Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
And when Jesus was on the cross, he was actually bearing our sin and guilt, bearing our shame and sorrow and suffering. And so this is a perfect representation of looking to someone who is taking our sin, and by looking, we would be healed. This Old Testament story, Jesus is now drawing this significance. Hey, Nicodemus, you're asking, how can you actually experience a new starting point? How can you actually be born again? Well, just like the children of Israel looked to something that they thought was silly and didn't make any sense, the Son of Man will be lifted up in such a way that in human perspective, it would look as though something was being defeated and destroyed. But really, what was being defeated is death itself. (laughs) For as the Son of Man, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes, there's that trusts in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. And so when the Son of Man would be lifted up, when people would look, just like they looked to the snake, when people would look to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that revelation of God's love, that revelation of God's power, the revelation of the fact that God would give Himself so that you could have eternity, when people would see that, they would experience a new starting point. Do you follow that today? Does that make sense? I don't know. To Nicodemus, I I think that when he heard that, uh, there was probably a lot more chewing that his mind needed to do on that whole, whole concept. And what's interesting is that Nicodemus needed a different starting point. Remember, his starting point was he wanted to see the kingdom. And while that may be something nice, while may, that may be the goal that a lot of us are, are really motivated by, maybe there's a different motivation that Jesus wants us to have. Now, let me just kind of talk this out a little bit. And, uh, you know, as I was wrestling with this passage this week, I really believe that um, this is something I personally need to process a little bit more. But here's the thing. For Nicodemus, the, the kingdom, the end point, had become his starting point. Um, the kingdom, being in heaven, having the certainty of eternity, it became his motivation. As if, okay, because there is this kingdom, I am going to do this and believe this. Because there is this reward at the end, I'm going to live this way and not live that way. And maybe this is something that, um, for Nicodemus, really motivated his entire religious life. And I, I wonder how many of us resonate with that. You know, um, I mean, it, it would be similar today. You know, I want to go to heaven. I, I think if I were to ask that question, how many of us want to go to heaven? I'm sure, I'm sure 100% of us would resonate. Yeah, yeah, I'd... And even if we don't heartily resonate with that, some of us would say, you know, I'd rather go there than not there. Right? Okay? So, so there's this idea of, like, the end game. Yeah, that, that is motivating. It kind of motivates us. And because I want to be with Jesus, because I want to be with my loved ones, because I want to see those streets of gold, and I don't want to see what's on the opposite end of the spectrum, I'm going to do this and believe that. Uh, several years ago, I was sitting around with a, a group of... Um, they were actually volunteers for a Christian ministry called Youth for Christ. Uh, so several different denominations kind of gathered for this meeting. We were going over some training and stuff. And it dawned on me that there is serious motivation when it comes to not wanting to go to hell. Um, as we were sharing, the question was asked in that group of, of uh, youth workers and volunteers, the question was asked, hey, so tell us a little bit about how you've been started your relationship with Jesus. And person by person, there was this um, 
common thread in the story. When I learned about hell, I realized that I didn't want to go there. Now, I'm not judging that. I'm not like saying that that's terrible. But I'm saying, I guess the point is simply this, that at times we can be motivated more by fear than by love. Does that make sense to you? And I don't know, maybe there are some of us here today who have realized that, you know, if I, if I were to search the, the motivations of my heart, I'm actually motivated more by a fear of where I don't want to be or a desire of where I want to be than out of the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to ask this heart-searching question today, and this is a heart-searching question that, that I, I need to go through myself. And I'll just suggest that although fear and the desire to be in heaven or the desire to not be in hell, while those may be powerful motivators, I believe that God desires us to start not with where I want or don't want to be, but with who God is and what He has done. I'll just say that again. God desires us to start not with where I want or don't want to be, but with who God is and what He has done. Okay, I hope I'm not losing you guys. <laughs> because this, is, this gets to the heart of it. The first, I mean, using the kingdom um, as the end game like Nicodemus is using self as the starting point. Do you see that? It's where I want to be and where I don't want to be. That's what's motivating this whole religious life. At least for Nicodemus, that's where it was. And maybe some of us resonate with that. But I believe God is actually inviting us to find a different starting point. Not just where I want or don't want, but with what He has done and who He is. It's a heart-searching question. When you consider all that you do to seek God. You know, think about that. Well, what are, what are the things that you would uh, kind of cast under the umbrella of seeking God? Maybe reading the Bible. Maybe praying, you know. Um, attending church and gatherings and things like this. Um, maybe it's the lifestyle choices that you, because of your relationship or because of your, your perspective of who God is and you're seeking God. Lifestyle choices, your morality, things like that. When you consider all of that stuff... In your seeking of God, ask this simple question. Am I trying to secure His favor and blessing? Or do I seek God because He has already bestowed His favor and blessing? Do I seek God because I'm trying to fulfill my part of the bargain so that God has to fulfill His part of the bargain and give me heaven? Or do I seek God because of the bargain that He has already fulfilled? the promises that He has already fulfilled, the fact that He loves you with an everlasting love and He demonstrated it without question on the cross of Calvary. I believe that Jesus was inviting Nicodemus and every one of us to find a new starting point in all of our seeking after God, in all of our reading and studying and praying and serving and living differently and doing this and not doing this, in all of this to find a different starting point rather than the kingdom to start with the cross, rather than the reward to start with a relationship, rather than ourselves to start with the Savior. And so... The question, what is your starting point right now? And do you need a new starting point? Thus, when we seek God, we're responding to who He is and what He's done and not what I want out of the deal.
And for Nicodemus, this conversation ended with, uh, with not much of a sense of closure or conclusion. The conversation goes on. You don't really hear much more about what happens to Nicodemus. And you're kind of wondering, like, did he do anything about that? I mean, he had the curiosity, right? He had that conversation. But did he go anywhere else with that? Did it move from conviction to consecration? Did it go anywhere else besides that? Yeah, I see some heads nodding. You, you kind of know his story. I mean, you see later on it's this glimpse of Nicodemus as, as the religious leaders are kind of plotting whether to or how to crucify or how to get rid of Jesus. Nicodemus kind of stands up and says, Hey, guys, how are we going to do something if we haven't really f- searched it out? You know, He, he kind of poses some resistance to the general rejection of Jesus' ministry. But even there, that, that's in John 7, but even there you don't really see like obvious evidence that Nicodemus has moved from that curiosity and conversation and gone deeper into consecration until, until you get to towards the end of John. John chapter 19. Take your Bibles. Go with me to the 19th chapter now. John chapter 19. <clears throat> Did Nicodemus actually enter into a trusting, surrendered relationship with Jesus? And this is the only piece of data that we can base a conclusion off of. John chapter 19 Let's see if we have it here. John chapter 19, verse 39. This is now, uh, John chapter 19 is, is the story of the cross. Jesus has now become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's after Jesus has breathed his last breath, after Jesus has said, it is finished. And in John 19, it says, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. He's basically uh, bringing things necessary to properly bury the body of Jesus. Something that the disciples had no financial resources to accomplish. For someone that they revered, for someone that they loved, for someone that they were endeared to, they couldn't do it. But Nicodemus comes out of the woodworks. And it's interesting that John says, who at first came by night, implying that this is not night. <laughs> when Nicodemus comes and demonstrates his connection to Jesus, this is no longer under the garb of night. This is not under the radar. This is, this is for all to see. He also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. In other words, Nicodemus has moved from that curiosity and conversation, but now his actions are in reference to, not himself, but the Savior. What did it for him? In John 19, Nicodemus saw something. He saw the Son of Man lifted up. He saw the Lamb of God. And that revelation of a God who loved him more than his own existence that revelation of a God who would give all inspired him to give all back. Do you follow that? It was the revelation of the Lamb of God, and that was the starting point. He, it, it, it was no longer the kingdom was his starting point, motivating all his actions. It was now the cross was his starting point. And now his life centered around the one and only Lamb of God. The conviction finally came that God truly loves him more than his own existence and enabled him to truly see the kingdom and enter into a saving relationship with the loving God. And ever after Nicodemus' life centered around a new reference point, there was someone 
someone else who mattered more than anyone else's perspective or opinions or expectations or, hey, you should be doing... There was someone else now. So seeing Jesus on Calvary for Nicodemus, when we see the God who is all in, it inspires a response of surrender where we desire to be all in too. You know, it's, uh, in my devotional reading this week, I was reading through this, uh, this letter that Paul writes to the Corinthian church. And he says simply this, For the love of Christ, what is that next word? Compels us. Compels, motivates. It moves us to act. It's the love of Christ that compels us. Not the desire for reward. Not, not what my pockets are going to get out of this. It's the love of Christ that compels us. And He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for Him who died for them and rose again. He died for all that, that we would have a new reference point, that we would have a new starting point, that we would no longer be inspired and motivated by what we want out of the deal, but what He has given and who He is. And so, as we just kind of wrap this up, I want us to consider, you know, what, what, then, is, what then is God wanting for me when it comes to first steps in seeking God? I want to make a specific appeal to those of us who are just beginning, maybe uh, even considering seeking God. You know, you haven't really, I mean, like there have been portions of your life or experiences in your life where you felt close to God, but, but you haven't really pursued. Um, I, would, I would just appeal to you today. If you've had that curiosity, maybe you've even had conversation with Jesus or people who know Jesus, and you feel like you, you've become informed about Jesus in your relationship, I would just encourage you. God is inviting you to move from that to a deeper conviction of who He is and what He's done and actually live a life of consecration. To let your life actually center around God Himself and not your own desires and, and wishes. And I want to extend an appeal to those of us who um, are a little bit more seasoned in this spiritual journey. Maybe we've grown up with this kind of thing. Maybe we've, you know, we're, we, we were baptized many, many years ago and, you know, we've been living this life. I want to make an appeal to, to those of us who are maybe on that, that side of the spectrum where these ideas are very familiar. And the simple appeal is to restart. To consider where your starting point has become. Maybe you started with a, a love for who Jesus is, and, and that's beautiful, but I, I, I wouldn't put it past us. I wouldn't put it past us if we need ourselves, just like Nicodemus, a restarting point. I mean, if Jesus got straight to the heart with Nicodemus, hey, 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 you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Maybe, could it be, can we just start with the assumption that we need to be born again, even if we've been around for a while? And so I just want to simply appeal to that, to restart with beholding the Lamb. Be honest with what compels you. If it's anything but the love of Christ, if it's the love of ease, if it's the desire for a reward, if it's hope for convenience and the blessings of God because I do this, He's going to do that, just evaluate that, you know. Um, be honest with your motivations and start with the cross, not with the kingdom. So, simple invitation today for all of us, wherever we are on that spectrum, is to seek God, to continue the journey of knowing Him and let that move into a trusted, trusting, surrendered relationship to God. And know that, that what are we to do throughout the week? Is there an action? Is there a takeaway? Is there something that I can do about this? Um, maybe you're, you're the practical thinker and you're like, okay, this is a nice idea, but now what? You know? Um, and I would say simply this. 
Don't settle with trying harder for a relationship with God. Don't settle for trying harder, mustering up more of your willpower to surrender to God. Instead, build the habit of beholding the Lamb. It's a subtle shift. It's not, okay, I need to have a better relationship with God, so I'm going to... I would just simply do whatever it takes to build a habit of beholding the Lamb in all of your seeking after God. I don't know, what are, what are the things that naturally come to you in, when, in regards to seeking God? Is it prayer? I mean, is it like, you know, you, you spend prayerful moments, maybe at the beginning of the day or throughout the day where, when it's quiet. Is it reading of Scripture? Is it listening to music that, that causes you to really just like, hmm, God is near. You know, whatever those things are, take reflective time and do those things with an eye on the love of God, the Lamb of God, how the Lamb of God reveals who He is and what He has done for you. So don't, don't, don't feel like you're walking away with this burden of like, okay, I just, need to have a, I just need to try harder to live a consecrated life. No, no, no. Don't try harder. <laughs> just build a habit of looking where it all begins. Does that make sense today? Build the habit of beholding the Lamb. So what are those things that you seek God through? In that reading, maybe you have a devotional reading habit. Maybe you do the Sabbath school quarterly every day. But in those things that you're reading and studying and praying and doing, do you see the love of God? Have you been beholding the Lamb of God? Let that become the new norm. Let that become the new starting point. Uh, maybe today uh, you're, you're wanting to fill out something on the Connect card saying, hey, yeah, okay, this is actually uh, inspiring me. I, I need to grow my relationship with Jesus and be very intentional about that. I need some resources. Go ahead and check that on your Connect card and we'll send you some resources. We'll, we'll give you some guide. We'll pray for you in that. Maybe some of you are thinking, man, I need to declare my faith in Jesus through baptism. Uh, that, that's, that's a step that I've taken before and I need to do it again or that's a step that I've never taken before and why not now? Maybe that's something on the Connect card you want to fill out. Either way, let us seek God. How many of you are in? You want to take some first steps in seeking God, and it starts with not just beholding the kingdom, but beholding the cross? Is that your desire? Amen. Amen. I want us to uh, sing together. You know, let that be our commitment. I'm going to invite our song team. We're going to sing this simple song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I would invite you just to stand with us. If that's your desire, to, to really behold the cross. Let's stand together and sing.